1: Coming up, Marina Hyde on Boris Johnson's resignation honours list, Michelle Obama reads an exclusive extract from her new book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times, and finally, journalist Tom Lamont on Quiet Nights In, being the new going out.
0: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com newsadfree. That's amazon.com newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Now, a dubious, yet suspiciously short honours list pushed through by a former PM still under investigation resignations and suspensions, and outstanding sexual misconduct allegations. The scandals pile so high, the Tories hope we can't keep track of them. But, observes Marina Hyde, outside the walls of Westminster, anger is mounting. Read by Colleen Prendergast.
3: Many of the people who have been Prime Minister in the past six years seem to have internalised the idea that we're sleepwalking towards an apologetically British form of tinpot dictatorship. After all, each of them has spent a remarkable amount of their time in office saying, out loud, I really don't think the public wants an election. Perhaps the arc of history is bending towards them being right. As discussed here previously, a recent poll found that 61% of 18 to 34-year-olds supported running the UK with a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Parliament slash elections. Which doesn't feel like the most ringing endorsement of whichever form of democracy we currently practice. Constitutional experts slash Dadaists are invited to get in touch to clarify. We have an unelected second chamber and the second mandate-free prime minister in just over two months. Meanwhile, the former health secretary who spent most of the pandemic telling everyone how to behave has absconded from his post as a member of parliament and is currently poised to pocket a rumoured £400,000 fee to enter the I'm a Celebrity jungle, where he claims to want to talk to the public about dyslexia. That's going to be difficult, with his mouth full of kangaroo cock. But we are where we are. Against this increasingly necrotic political backdrop, many will feel too far gone to react angrily to a Boris Johnson resignation honours list that includes peerages for young number 10 aides, one of whom, Charlotte Owen, is said to be in her late 20s, for Nadine Dorries, for the former Tory mayoral candidate who threw a lockdown party, for MPs who are deferring taking their ermine till after the next election so as not to risk unfortunate by-election results for the governing party, and for the guy who paid for Johnson's wildly expensive holiday to mystique that the then Prime Minister repeatedly lied about. Indeed. All of this ennoblement is being pushed, while Johnson is himself being investigated by the Privileges Committee on a charge of misleading the house, for which the penalty could be his removal from it. Like I say, many will simply decline to lose their rag about him stuffing the lords. At some point, the smart move becomes saving your energy for the militias. As for the specific defects of this honours list, in many ways they aren't exactly new. We have long seen politicians and political aides given peerages simply for doing their jobs. The equivalent of a participation medal, albeit in this case for people who participated in one of the most shambolic periods of government in living memory. And, arguably... There's nothing wrong with becoming a peer in your late 20s. People have been doing it for centuries, typically after their father succumbed to consumption or suffered a hunting mishap following rumours of an affair with a senior Whig. Indeed, Johnson's allies stress that the former PM has, in fact, proffered a slimmed-down list compared with what he had originally planned – Yet that is solely because, as we now know only too well, the recently ousted Johnson actively seeks a swift return to Downing Street. Trust me, had he decided to draw a final line under the dignity aborting era that was his political career, this list would have contained everyone from his toddler son to the hairdresser who paints over Lord Lebedev's beard regrowth however many times a week. Lord Brownlow, the sad sack who paid for seemingly every luxury item the Johnsons bought but couldn't afford, would have been made a duke. During his premiership, Johnson had already created 86 peers, meaning that a hefty percentage of the 800 or so members of the upper chamber will have now been appointed by him. Some Tory donor who was Jacob Rees-Mogg's business partner was recently ennobled by Liz Truss, solely so he could become investment minister. Lord Johnson, no relation in this rare case, held the investment minister post for precisely 26 days before the Truss administration died in a freak prime ministering accident, but he is now in the Lords and able to influence British law for the rest of his life. Yet on it all rolls, in the hope that people won't notice. Indeed, the task of noticing such things has become almost a full-time job. Every now and then, I have to remind myself that at least 56 MPs are reportedly facing sexual misconduct allegations. Where are we with any of those? There are now so many of these stories that we lose track of how they end, or even what happens after they have first broken. The other day, I suddenly remembered David Warburton MP, the member for Somerset and Froome, who in April was suspended from the Conservative Party following multiple sexual assault allegations and claims of cocaine use. In response, he insisted he had enormous amounts of defence against the claims. What happened with that story, I wonder? A quick Google search finds that only a fortnight ago, David was farting out quotes calling for Liz Truss to be swiftly replaced. It's crucial we put in place a new leader and prime minister who truly has the strength of purpose that Britain needs, Warburton thundered, possibly in front of an upturned roasting tin. I am pressing for the leadership contest to be conducted expeditiously and look forward to a new Prime Minister who will command both local and national support as we face the very significant challenges that must be overcome and overcome rapidly. Certainly more rapidly than David's case is being investigated. The many grim spectacles of the past few years in British politics have had a cumulative effect. One of the most significant takeouts of this era will be the failure or refusal of its leading politicians to understand the deep impact of all the various democratic crises they have visited upon the people they are supposed to serve. It is a mark of their terminal deficiency. They may not even recognise these as crisis events, preferring to categorise them as a rolling series of consequence-free cock-ups that they would soon be able to overwrite in the goldfish-like public memory, usually with another scandal. Everything from the pandemic cronyism to Partygate to porn in the chamber to Johnson's endless lying to the perceived trust premium on mortgages has had the dubious benefit of being followed about ten minutes later by another scandal to draw the eye. Oh, so the politicians involved in them seem to have hoped. But if you bother listening to people outside Westminster and away from the short-termist whir of a dopamine-charged daily news cycle, this has not turned out to be the case. There is a huge amount of anger. Conspiracism is, in many ways understandably, on the rise. Trust in all politicians has been damaged, and distrust of democracy has inevitably followed. Still, No doubt most of Johnson's resignation honours will be waved through. What's another straw on the camel's back?
1: That was Cronyism Donors Wiley MPs Johnson's Honours Glorify All That Is Wrong With His Party by Marina Hyde Read by Colleen Prendergast Next When Barack Obama was elected president in 2009, the plan was for Michelle's 71-year-old mother, Marianne Robinson, to move in too, just until Sasha and Malia were settled. She ended up staying for eight years. She came to be fondly known as Mrs. R by White House staff and was revered for her low-key approach. She also ended up becoming the family's secret weapon when it came to the inevitable anxiety around parenting. Here, the former first lady shows five of her mother's more tried-and-true maxims around raising decent children without drama and fuss, but with the following disclaimer from Mrs. R herself. Just make sure they know I'm not in the business of telling anybody how to live.
4: Number one, teach your kids to wake themselves up. When I was five years old and starting kindergarten... My parents gifted me with a small electric alarm clock. It had a square face with a little green glow-in-the-dark hands that pointed toward the hour and the minute. My mom showed me how to set my wake-up time and how to turn the alarm off when it buzzed. She then helped me work backward through all the things I'd need to do in the morning, eat my breakfast, brush my hair and teeth, pick out my clothes, get my shoes tied, and so on in order to calculate how many minutes it would take to get myself up and out the door to school. She was there to provide instruction. She'd furnish me with the tool, but the challenge of using it effectively became mine to figure out. And I freaking loved that alarm clock. I loved what it gave me, which was power and agency over my own little life. My mom, I realize now, had passed on this particular tool at a deliberately chosen window early enough in my development, before I was old enough to be cynical about having to get up for school in the morning, before she'd ever have to start shaking me awake herself. It spared her the hassle in some ways, but the real gift was to me. I could wake myself up. If I ever did sleep through my alarm or otherwise get lazy and drag my feet about going to school, my mother was not interested in doing any nagging or cajoling. She remained hands-off, making clear that my life was largely my own. Listen, I got my education, she'd say. I've already been to school. This isn't about me. Number two, it isn't about you good parents are always working to put themselves out of business the alarm clock approach was representative of an even more deliberate undertaking on my parents part and that was to help us kids learn to get on our own feet and stay on our feet not just physically but emotionally from the day she birthed each of her children my mother was striving toward a singular goal and that was to render herself more or less obsolete in our lives. My mom made no bones about the fact that, especially when it came to -to day-to-day practical tasks, her plan was to become as unnecessary in our lives as possible, as quickly as possible. The sooner that time arrived, the more successful she deemed herself to be as a parent. I'm not raising babies, she used to say, I'm raising adults. It may sound scandalous to say, especially in an era when helicopter parenting has become de rigueur, but I'm pretty sure that most of my mom's decision-making was guided by one basic question. What's the minimum I can do for them right now? This was not a cavalier or self-serving question, but rather a deeply thoughtful one. In our home, Self-sufficiency mattered above all else. My mom believed that her hands only got in the way of our hands. If there was something new we needed to learn, she'd show us a way to do it and then quickly step aside. This meant that with the aid of a step stool, Craig and I learned how to wash and dry the dishes long before we were tall enough to reach the sink. We were required to make our beds and do our own laundry as a matter of habit. We did a fair amount of this stuff imperfectly, but the point was, we were doing it. My mother wasn't stepping in. She didn't correct our errors or squelch our way of doing things, even if our way was slightly different from hers. This, I believe, was my first taste of power. I liked being trusted to get something done. It's easy for kids to make mistakes when they're little, my mom told me recently when I asked her about this. Let them make them, and then you can't make too big a deal out of it either, because if you do, they'll stop trying. She sat by and allowed us to struggle and make mistakes with our chores, our homework, and our relationships with various teachers, coaches, and friends. None of it was tied to her own self-worth or ego or done for bragging rights. It was not about her at all, she would say. She was busy trying to wash her hands of us, after all. This meant that her mood didn't rise or fall on our victories. Her happiness wasn't dictated by whether we came home with A's on our report cards whether Craig scored a lot of points at his basketball game or I got elected to student council. When good things happened, she was happy for us. When bad things happened, she helped us process it before returning to her own chores and challenges. The important thing was that she loved us regardless of whether we succeeded or failed. She lit up with gladness anytime we walked through the door. On days when I came home stewing about something a teacher had done, and I'll admit this happened with some regularity, my mom would stand in the kitchen and listen to whatever tirade I had to unleash about the unfairness of some teacher's remark or the stupidity of an assignment or how Mrs. So-and-so clearly didn't know what she was doing. And when I was finished, when the steam of anger had dissipated to the point that I could think clearly she'd ask a simple question, one that was fully sincere and also, at the same time, just a tiny bit leading. Do you need me to go in there for you? There were a couple of instances over the years when I did genuinely need my mom's help, and I got it. But 99% of the time, I did not need her to go in on my behalf. Just by asking that question and by giving me a chance to respond, she was subtly pushing me to continue reasoning out the situation in my head. How bad was it actually? What were the solutions? What could I do? This is how, in the end, I usually knew I could trust my own answer, which was, I think I can handle it. My mother helped me to learn how to puzzle out my own feelings and strategies for dealing with them, in part by just giving them room and taking care not to smother them with her own feelings or opinions. If I got overly sulky about something, she told tell me to go do one of my chores, not as punishment exactly, but rather as a means of right-sizing the problem. Get up and clean that bathroom, she'd say. It'll put your mind on things other than yourself. Inside our small home, she created a kind of emotional sandbox where Craig and I could safely rehearse our feelings and sort through our responses to whatever was going on in our young lives. Once when I was in high school and unhappy about having to deal with a math teacher who struck me as arrogant, my mom heard my complaint. "'Nodded understandingly and then shrugged. "'You don't have to like your teacher, "'and she doesn't have to like you,' she said. "'But she's got math in her head that you need in yours, "'so maybe you should just go to school and get the math.' "'She looked at me then and smiled, "'as if this should be the simplest thing in the world to grasp. "'You can come home to be liked,' she said. "'We will always like you here.' 3. Know what's truly precious. My mom remembers that the house she grew up in on the south side had a big coffee table at the center of the living room made of smooth, delicate glass. It was breakable, and so everyone in the family was forced to navigate around it, almost on tiptoe. She was a studious observer of her own family, my mother. She sat squarely in the middle of seven children, which gave her a lot to watch. She had three older siblings and three younger ones, plus two parents who appeared to be polar opposites and didn't much get along. She saw how her father, my grandfather Southside, tended to baby his kids. He drove them around in his car so that they wouldn't need to take the bus, afraid of what lay beyond his control. He woke them up in the morning so they wouldn't need to set an alarm. He seemed to enjoy their dependence on him. My grandmother Rebecca, my mom's mom, meanwhile, was stiff and proper, patently unhappy and possibly, my mother believes now, clinically depressed. When she was young, she dreamed of being a nurse But apparently her mother, a washerwoman who'd raised seven kids, had told her that going to nursing school cost a lot of money and black nurses rarely got good jobs. So Rebecca married my grandfather and had seven children instead, never seeming terribly content with what her life had yielded. The governing edict in grandmother Rebecca's house was that children should be seen and not heard. At the dinner table, my mom and her siblings were instructed to stay silent, to listen mutely and respectfully to the adult conversation around them. When her mother's friends came to visit their home, my mom and her siblings were required to join the adults in the living room. All of them, from toddlers to teens, were expected to sit politely at the edges, permitted to say nothing more than hello. My mother describes long evenings spent in that room with her mouth clamped shut in agony, hearing plenty of adults speak she wanted to engage with, plenty of ideas she wanted to quibble with or at least better understand. It must have been during these hours that my mother arrived at the idea, even unconsciously, that her own kids someday would be not just allowed but encouraged to speak. No earnest question would ever be disallowed. Laughter and tears were permitted. Nobody would need to tiptoe. One night, when someone new stopped in for a visit, my mom remembers the woman surveying all the young faces and restless bodies packed into the living room and finally posing a logical question. How possibly could you have a glass table like this and all of these kids... She doesn't recall how my grandmother responded, but my mom knew what the real answer was. Her own mother had missed a fundamental lesson about what was precious and what was not. What was the point of seeing children without hearing them? One evening, finally, when my mother was about 12, some grown-up friends came over to their house to visit and, for some foolish reason... One of them happened to sit down on the table. To my grandmother's horror, and as her children watched silently, it shattered into pieces on the floor. For Mom, it was a bit of cosmic justice. Even today, this story still cracks her up.
1: We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.
1: I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Michelle Obama reading from her book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times. Four. Parent the child you've got.
4: The apartment my parents raised us in had nothing resembling a glass table. We had very little in our lives that was delicate or breakable at all. It's true that we couldn't afford anything too fancy, but it's also true that in the wake of her own upbringing, my mother had no interest in owning showpieces of any sort. At home, Craig and I were permitted to be ourselves. My brother and I were respectful of our elders and abided by some general rules— But we also spoke our minds at the dinner table, threw balls in the house, cranked music on the stereo, and horsed around on the couch. When something did break, a water glass or a coffee mug or every once in a while, a window, it was not a big deal. I tried to carry the same approach into my parenting of Sasha and Malia. I wanted them to feel both seen and heard to always voice their thoughts, and to never feel like they had to tiptoe in their own home. Barack and I established basic rules and governing principles for our household. Like my mom, I had our kids making their beds as soon as they were old enough to sleep in beds. Like his mom, Barack was all about getting the girls interested early in the pleasure provided by books what we learned quickly, however, was that raising little kids followed the same basic trajectory we'd experience with both pregnancy and childbirth. You can spend a lot of time dreaming, preparing, and planning for family life to go perfectly, but in the end, you're pretty much just left to deal with whatever happens. You can establish systems and routines Anoint your various sleep-feeding and disciplinary gurus from the staggering variety that exist. You can write your family bylaws and declare your religion and your philosophy out loud. But at some point, sooner rather than later, you will almost surely be brought to your knees, realizing that despite your best and most earnest efforts— You were only marginally, and sometimes very marginally, in control. Here's a story I'm not necessarily proud of. It happened one evening when we still lived in Chicago, when Malia was about seven years old and Sasha was just four. I was home after a long day of work, As was often the case in those days, Barack was across the country in Washington, D.C. in the middle of a Senate session that I was probably feeling resentful of. I had served the kids dinner, asked how their days had gone, supervised bath time and was now cleaning up the last of the dishes, sagging a little on my feet, desperate to be off duty and find even just a half hour to sit quietly by myself. The girls were supposed to be brushing their teeth for bed, but I could hear them running up and down the stairs to our third floor playroom, giggling wildly as they went. Hey, Malia, Sasha, it's time to wind down, I called from the foot of the stairs. There was a brief pause, three whole seconds maybe, and then more thundering footsteps, another shriek of laughter. It's time to settle down, I yelled again. Yet it was clear I was shouting into the void, fully disregarded by my own kids. I could feel the heat starting to rise in my cheeks, my patience disintegrating, my steam building up, my stack preparing to blow. All I wanted in the whole wide world was for those children to go to bed. Since the time I was a kid myself, my mom had always advised me to try to count to 10 in moments like these, to pause just long enough that you might grab on to some reason to respond rather than react. I think I got as far as counting to eight before I couldn't stand it another second. I was angry. I ran up the stairs and shouted for the girls to come down from the playroom and join me on the landing. I then took a breath and counted the last two seconds trying to quell my rage. When the girls appeared, the two of them in their pajamas, flushed and a little sweaty from the fun they'd been having, I told them, I quit. I was resigning from the job of being their mother. I summoned what little calm I could find in myself and said, Look, you don't listen to me. You seem to think you don't need a mother. You seem perfectly happy to be in charge of yourself, so go right ahead. You can feed and dress yourselves from now on, and you can get yourselves to bed. I am handing you your own little lives, and you can manage them yourselves. I don't care. I threw my hands in the air, showing them how helpless and hurt I felt. I am done, I said. It was in this moment that I got one of my life's clearest looks at who I was dealing with. Malia's eyes grew wide. Her lower lip started to tremble. Oh, Mommy, she said. I don't want that to happen. And she promptly hustled off to the bathroom to brush her teeth. Something in me relaxed. Wow, I thought. That sure worked fast. Four-year-old Sasha, meanwhile stood clutching the little blue blankie she liked to carry around, taking a second to process the news of my resignation before landing on her own emotional response, which was pure and unfettered relief. No sooner had her sister shuffled obediently off, Sasha turned without a word, and scampered back upstairs to the playroom as if to say, finally, this lady is out of my business. Within seconds, I heard her flip on the TV. In a moment of deep fatigue and frustration, I'd handed that child the keys to her own life, and it turned out that she was plenty happy to take them, long before she was actually ready to. Much as I'd like my mom's idea about eventually becoming obsolete in my kids' lives. It was far too early to quit. I promptly called Sasha back down from the playroom, marched her through the toothbrushing, and put her to bed. This one episode provided me with an important lesson about how to proceed with my children. I had one who wanted more guardrails from her parents and one who wanted fewer One who would respond first to my emotions, and another who would take my words at face value. Each kid had her own temperament, her own sensitivities, her own needs, strengths, and ways of interpreting the world around her. Barack and I would see these same dynamics manifest over and over again in our children as they grew, On the ski slopes, Malia would make measured precise turns, while Sasha preferred to bomb straight downhill. If you asked how Sasha's day at school had been, she'd answer with five words before bouncing off to her bedroom, whereas Malia would offer a detailed breakdown of every hour she'd spent away. Malia often sought our advice, Like her dad, she liked to make decisions with input, whereas Sasha thrived just as I once had as a kid when we trusted her to do her own thing. Neither was right or wrong, good or bad. They were and are simply different. In the end, the child you have will grow into the person they're meant to be. They will learn life their own way. You will control some, but definitely not all of how it goes for them. You can't remove unhappiness from their lives. You won't remove struggle. What you can give your kids is the opportunity to be heard and seen, the practice they need to make rational decisions based on meaningful values, and the consistency of your gladness that they are there. 5. Come home. We will always like you here. My mother said this to me and Craig not just once, but often. It's the one message that stood out above all else. You came home to be liked. Home was where you would always find gladness. I recognize that for many folks, home can be a more complicated, less comfortable idea It may represent a place or set of people or type of emotional experience that you are trying to move past. Home could well be a painful spot to which you never want to return, and that is okay. There's power in knowing where you don't want to go. You may need to courageously remake your idea of home fostering the parts of your flame that may have gone unrecognized when you yourself were a child. You may need to cultivate a chosen family rather than a biological one, protecting the boundaries that keep you safe. My mom moved, yes, kicking and screaming, to Washington with us, in part to help us with our kids, but also in part because I needed her gladness. I am nothing but a grown-up child myself, someone who at the end of a long day comes through the door feeling worn out and a little needy, looking for solace and acceptance and maybe a snack. In her wise and plain-spoken way, my mother built us all up. She lit up for us every day so that we could in turn light up for others she helped make the White House feel less like a museum and more like a home. During those eight years, Barack and I tried to throw open the doors of that home to more people of more races and backgrounds, and particularly to more children, inviting them in to touch the furniture and explore what was there. We wanted it to feel like a palace of gladness, telegraphing one simple, powerful message. We will always like you here. Mom will take no credit for any of it, of course. She'll be the first to tell you still that she's nothing special, and it's never been about her anyway. Late in 2016, about a month before a new president was sworn in, My mother happily packed her bags. There was little fanfare and, at her insistence, no farewell party either. She just moved out of the White House and went back to Chicago, returning to her place on Euclid Avenue, to her old bed and old belongings, pleased that she'd gotten the job done.
1: That was an excerpt from the audiobook of The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times, written and read by Michelle Obama and produced and published by Penguin Random House Audio. If you want to find out more about the book, we'll include a link on the episode page at theguardian.com. Finally, pre-pandemic, he used to love sweaty gigs and late-night bars, but Tom Lamont has found joy much closer to home. Now, playing a game with his friends around a kitchen table is the only way he wants to party. Read by Colleen Prendergast.
3: About once a month, I slink out of my front door, shamefaced and secretive, like someone on their way to visit a strip bar, and I show up at a friend's address. There we sit around a table and earnestly arrange small wooden pieces. We shuffle shiny cards, dense with type. We lay out elaborate cardboard tiles that fit together like puzzle pieces. For three or four hours straight, we play a board game called The Settlers of Catan. It pains me to confess it. I feel about a million years old. But in our strange and straitened times, post-Covid, mid-economic crisis and with winter imminent, these gentle nights in have become some of my favourite nights out. I look forward to plonking myself down at a kitchen table to play a marathon game of the settlers of Catan like I used to look forward to restaurant steaks, sweaty gigs and late-night bar crawls. Play is maybe the wrong word play doesn't capture the totality of our investment. There are half a dozen people who show up at Catan Club, five men and one woman, and for the duration of any contest, we turn into savages, betraying one another, abandoning promises, occasionally cackling. The game was devised in Germany in the 1990s and it shares elements with Monopoly and Risk, as well as the children's card game Go Fish, vintage video games such as Civilization and Theme Park, and the parlor game Wink Murder. You are given plots of land in an imaginary pre-industrial world called Catan. Natural advantages are not evenly distributed, But you do what you can to bleed the land, build towns and trading routes, form a militia, prevent property thefts, and talk your way out of mob justice that can be as cruel and arbitrary as any episode-ending betrayal in Game of Thrones. After initial experiments with other board games, we tried The Settlers of Catan and never looked back. In my experience while playing, you feel no ickiness or embarrassment whatsoever. You only lust after more supplies, another favourable dice roll, a longer road, a slightly bigger army. But, before and after Board Games Club, I do feel a distinct, queasy melancholy. I find I'm reluctant to meet the eyes of younger night outers on the train. I turned 40 this year. If you'd told me, at 30, this was how I would be socialising in a decade's time, I would have been... Surprised? Appalled? For sure, I would have been curious to know what the hell had happened to my social life as I knew it. The pandemic of 2020 pulled us all up. There was a halt. Professional, emotional, educational, physiological, social. And afterwards, perspectives changed. By 2021, I should have been more broke than I was in 2019. But that wasn't the case for me. Despite a downtick in work, the bank balance remained even, and I realised then just how much cash I'd been tossing away on pizzas, pints, coffees, trains, Ubers, childcare, restaurants – paying, in other words, to go on playing the wonderful game of socialising in a British city. Trapped at home, like everybody else during the lockdowns, I had exactly one social commitment – It was a midweek game of poker, played online against the same few friends, all of us hunched in front of our computers, holding supermarket beers and chuntering about bad luck. Poker entry, £20, beers, £5, chuntering, free. After a few months of this, I could hardly imagine having fun any other way. Out the other side of the pandemic, it no longer seemed so strange to pass an evening clustered around a table, rolling dice, quarrelling over the import price of Catani's wool. Last summer, a few of us from Board Games Club tried returning to a nightclub we hadn't visited since before Covid. It wasn't that I had a bad time, more that I struggled with how close we all stood. Thousands of strangers, hip to hip, standing on each other's toes, I realised then that something had probably changed in my brain and body in 2020. The proximity alarms had been rewired, the eardrums denuded, and certain anxieties much closer to the surface. So, Catan Club. We started coming together around a board because one of our number was unwell after a bout of long covid but all of us quickly came to appreciate the restorative effects of socialising that was sober-ish, and, though not always quiet, at least always stationary. Cheap, too. The picture on the settlers of Catan box sometimes catches my eye. It shows a yellow sun shining on two sweating farmers who have set down their tools and hay bales to rest on a rock. One is holding out a conciliatory hand to the other, as if to say, look, this may not be what we imagined for ourselves, but it's a pure, honest, simple pursuit, and definitely more financially prudent than paying a three-figure bill in a mediocre restaurant just because the proprietor was once on MasterChef. Recently, in a lull between gatherings, I tried to gauge everyone else's level of embarrassment or contentment about our new way of hanging out. I asked them all to imagine what their younger selves would say if dragged out of some filthy and thrilling club in the two thousands and shown a glimpse of the future, with all of us sitting around and frowning in concentration around the settlers of Catan, the success of our evening about to turn on whether someone had collected enough brick factory tokens. What would our younger selves have felt? Disgust, someone suggested. Relief, said another. One part disgust to one part relief? That ratio seems about right. Anyway, I find myself looking forward to our next game. I hope I can bale enough hay. That was How Did Cozy Nights
1: In With A Board Game Become The New Going Out? by Tom Lamont, read by Colleen Prendergast. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph, a brand new 10 part series from The Guardian, out now. This podcast is for anyone who loves pop and internet culture and wants to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives. This week, Shantae will be taking a look at the latest and probably most controversial series of The Crown. Listen to a new episode every Thursday. Just search for Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and Michelle Obama and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers... Were Max Anderson and Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.